0: For 50% off, visit rosettastone.com slash LeVar. That's rosettastone.com L-E-V-A-R. If a friend asks how you're doing and you say, I'm okay. When the truth is,
1: I don't want my problems to burden
0: anyone. Or you say, Hang it in there. Because if I ask for help, they'll just think I'm weak. Then this is your sign to call, text, or chat. 988 for free, confidential support. Anytime. You don't have to hide how you feel. Hi, I'm LeVar Burton, and this is LeVar Burton Reads. Where in every episode I handpick a different piece of short fiction... And I read it to you. The only thing these stories have in common is that I love them. And I hope you will too. This is our final episode of season five, y'all. But do not fret. The next season is already in the hopper. And I'm continuing to put out a few more episodes of my Stories with Friends series on Stitcher Premium. So while you wait for the next season to begin, may I suggest you check those out? And why not tell a friend about the podcast so they can get caught up? I'm really excited about what we're putting together for next season. Uh, but let's talk about what I'm reading today. You have likely heard Michael Shaban's name. Now, I mean, he's the showrunner of Star Trek Picard. He and his wife, who is also his writing partner, Ayelet Waldman, worked on the Netflix series Unbelievable, which just came out last month. They have also edited an anthology called Fight of the Century, which will be published in 2020 by Simon & Schuster, and that's going to coincide with the centennial anniversary of the ACLU. And Mr. Shabon has been writing great short stories and novels for decades— He won the Pulitzer Prize in 2001 for his magical novel, The Amazing Adventures of Cavalier and Clay, published by Random House. That book follows two boys raised during the Great Depression who, in the golden age of comic books and superheroes, decide to create their own superhero. Today's story actually comes from that novel, but it appeared first in The New Yorker magazine in July of 1999. And it's the story of Josef Cavalier, a boy living in Prague in the 1930s. Josef is obsessed with magic and longs to become a famous escape artist like Houdini. And he's also obsessed with gaining access to the inner sanctum of a local magician's association called the Hofsenzer Club. And he is sometimes aided and abetted and sometimes hindered in that quest by his younger brother, Thomas. This is a story of siblinghood, of drive, of consequences, and it is told in Shaban's very vivid and very funny prose. So, if you're ready, let's take a deep breath. <sighs> <sighs> hmm. And begin The Hof Sensor Club by Michael Sheban Josef Cavalier's determination to storm the exclusive Hofsinsa Club of Prague took full form over breakfast one day in 1935, when he choked on a mouthful of omelette with apricot preserves. It was one of those rare mornings at the Cavalier flat in a lacy, secession-style building on a quiet square when everyone sat down to breakfast together. Joseph's father and mother, the two doctors, Cavalier, maintained full schedules and, like many busy parents, were inclined at once to neglect and to indulge their children. Herr Dr. Emil Cavalier was the author of Grundsatz der Endocrinologie, a standard text and the identifier of Cavalier's acromegaly. Frau Dr. Anna Cavalier was a neurologist by training who had been analyzed by Alfred Adler and had since gone on to treat, on her paisley divan, numbers of Prague's young catheted women. That morning, when Josef, the elder son, suddenly hunched forward, eyes watering, scrabbling for his napkin, his father reached out from behind his tagblatt and idly pounded him on the back. His mother, without looking up from the latest number of Monatschrift für Psychiatrie und Neurologie, reminded Yosef, for the thousandth time, not to bolt his food. Only little Thomas noticed, in the instant before Yosef brought the napkin to his lips, the glint of something foreign in his brother's mouth. Getting up from the table, he went around to Yosef's place and stared at his brother. Ignoring him, Yosef tipped another forkful of omelet into his mouth. What is it? Thomas said. What is what? said Yosef. He was a pale, freckled boy, black-haired, handsome with a large, squashed-looking nose, and wide-set Blue eyes. Go away. Have you lost a feeling, Joseph? asked Miss Horn, Thomas's governess. He has something in his mouth, said Thomas. It's shiny. Joseph stuck two fingers between his right cheek and upper right gum and pulled out a flat strip of metal, notched at one end, a tiny fork no longer than Thomas's pinky. What is that? his mother asked. Josef shrugged. A torque wrench, he said. What else? said his father. Of course, it's a torque wrench. Herr Kornblum said I should get used to it, Josef explained. He said that when Houdini died, he was found to have worn away two pockets in his cheeks. Herr Dr. Cavalier returned to his tagblatt. An admirable aspiration, he said. Josef had become interested in stage magic as soon as his hands grew large enough to handle a deck of playing cards. In Prague, a city of illusionists and sleight-of-hand artists, it was not difficult for a boy with indulgent parents to find competent instruction. He had studied for a year with a check named Bujik, who called himself Rango, and specialized in card-and-coin manipulation, mentalism, and the picking of pockets. He could also cut a housefly in half with a thrown three of diamonds. Soon, Josef had learned the reign of silver, the dissolving Kreutzer, the Count Erno Pass, and rudiments of the dead grandfather— But when it was brought to the attention of Yosef's parents that Rango had once been jailed for replacing the jewelry and money borrowed from his audiences with paste and blank paper, the boy was removed from his tutelage. The phantom aces and queens, showers of silver cronin and purloined wristwatches that were Rango's stock in trade had been fine for a boy's amusement And for Joseph, the long hours spent standing in front of the lavatory mirror, practicing slips and slights that made it possible to seem to hurl a coin into the right ear, through the brain pan, and out the left ear of a chum or a relative, or to pop the knave of hearts into the handkerchief of a pretty girl, required a masturbatory intensity of concentration that became almost more pleasurable than the trick itself. But then a patient of his father's supplied the name of an illusionist and escape artist named Bernard Kornblum, which was to change all this. Under Kornblum's tutelage, Josef began to learn the rigorous trade of the Ausbrecher, or escape artist, from the lips of one of its masters. At the age of 14, he determined to consecrate himself to a life of timely escape. Kornblum was an Eastern Jew, bone thin with a bushy red beard that he tied up in a black silk net before every performance. It distracts them, he said, meaning his audiences whom he viewed with the veteran performer's admixture of wonder and disdain. Kornblum's forehead was immense, his fingers long and dexterous, with knobby, inelegant joints, and his cheeks looked rubbed and peeling, as though chafed by polar winds. Although the Cavaliers were Jewish, Kornblum was among the first Eastern Jews whom Joseph had encountered. There were Jewish refugees from Poland and Russia in his parents' circle, but these were suave, Europeanized doctors and musicians from large cities who spoke French and German. Kornblum, whose German was awkward and Czech non-existent, had been born in a shuttle outside Tallinn and spent most of his life wandering the provinces of Imperial Russia, Playing the Odeons, barns, and market squares of a thousand small towns and villages. He wore suits of an outdated pigeon-breasted Valentino cut. Because his diet consisted in large part of ten fish, anchovies, smelts, sardines, tuni, his breath often carried a rank marine tang. His baltic smell, his shop worn good manners, his yiddish made a strong impression on Josef. Twice a week, that spring and summer, Josef went to Kornblum's room on the top floor of a sagging house on Maisel Street in the Josefstadt to be chained to the radiator or tied hand and foot with coils of thick hempen rope. Kornblum did not at first give him the slightest guidance on how to escape these constraints, you will pay attention," he said on the afternoon of Yosef's first lesson, as he shackled him to a bentwood chair. I assure you of this. Also, you will get used to the feeling of the chain. The chain is your silk pajamas now. It is your mother's loving arms. Apart from the chair, an iron bedstead a wardrobe, and a picture of Jerusalem on the east wall, the room was almost bare. The only beautiful object was a Chinese trunk carved from some kind of tropical wood, as red as raw liver with thick brass hinges and a pair of fanciful brass locks in the form of stylized peacocks. The locks opened by a system of tiny levers and springs concealed in the jade eye spots of each peacock’s tail feathers. You pushed the 14 jade buttons in an order that seemed to change each time the magician opened the chest. For the first few days, Cornbloom showed Yosef different kinds of locks that he took one by one from the chest. Locks used to secure manacles, mailboxes, and ladies' diaries. Warded and pin tumbler door locks. Sturdy padlocks and combination locks removed from safes and strongboxes. Wordlessly, he would take each of the locks apart using only a screwdriver and then reassemble them. Toward the end of the hour, still without freeing Yosef, he talked about the fundamentals of breath control. At last, in the final minutes of the lesson, he would unchain his student, only to stuff him into a plain pine box. If you are a claustrophobe, he explained the first time, we must detect this now, not when you lie in chains at the bottom of the Moldau, strapped inside a postman's bag with your family and neighbors waiting for you to swim out. At the start of the second month, Cornbloom introduced the pick and the torque wrench and set about applying these wonderful tools to each of the sample locks in the chest. His touch was deft, And though he was well past 60, his hands steady. He would pick the locks and then, for Joseph's further edification, pick them again with the works exposed. The locks, whether new or antique, English, German, Chinese, or American, did not resist his tinkerings for more than a few seconds. He had, in addition, a small library of thick, dusty volumes, some of them imprinted with the seal of the Bolshevik's dreaded Cheka, in which were listed, in infinite columns of minuscule type, the combination formulae for thousands of the combination locks manufactured in Europe since 1900. For weeks, Joseph pleaded with Kornblum to be allowed to handle a pick himself, Contrary to instructions, he had been working over the locks at home with a hatpin and a spoke from a bicycle wheel, with occasional success. Very well, said Kornblum at last. Handing Joseph his pick and a torque wrench, he led him to the door of his room, in which he himself had installed a fine new Ratzel seven-pin lock. Then he unknotted his necktie, and used it to blindfold Yosef. To see inside the lock, you don't use your eyes, he said. Yosef knelt down in darkness and felt for the brass-plated knob. The doorknob was cold against his cheek. When at last Cornbloom removed the blindfold, and motioned for Josef to climb into his coffin, Josef had picked the Ratzel three times, the last in under ten minutes. On the day before Josef caused a disturbance at the breakfast table, he had held out his wrists to Kornblum as usual to be cuffed and bound and was startled by a rare smile. Kornblum handed him a small black leather pouch. Unrolling it, Yosa found that it contained the tiny wrench and a set of steel picks, some no longer than the wrench, some twice as long, with smooth wooden handles. None were thicker than a broom straw. Their tips had been cut and bent into all manner of cunning moons, diamonds, and tildes. I made these, said Cornblum. They will be reliable. Uh, for me? For me to use? This is what we will now determine, Kornblum said. He pointed to his bed where he had laid out a pair of brand new German handcuffs and his best American Yale locks. Hitch me to the chair. Over the next two hours, Kornblum allowed himself to be repeatedly bound to the legs of the chair with a length of heavy chain. Other chains secured the chair to the radiator and the radiator to his neck. His hands were cuffed in front of his body so that he could smoke. Without a word from Kornblum, Yosef got the handcuffs and all but one of the locks off within 15 minutes. But the last lock the one-pound 1927 Yale dreadnought with sixteen pens and drivers frustrated his efforts. Joseph sweated and cursed under his breath, in check, so as not to offend his master. Kornblum lit another Sobrani. The pins have voices, he reminded Yosef at last. The pig is a tiny... Telephone wire. The tips of your fingers have ears. Yosef took another breath, slid a pick tipped with a small squiggle into the plug of the lock, and again applied the wrench. Quickly, he stroked the pick back and forth across the pins, feeling each one give in its turn, gauging the resistance of the drivers and springs. Each lock had its own point of equilibrium between torque and friction. If you turned too hard, the plug would jam too softly and the pens wouldn't catch properly. With sixteen pen columns, finding the point of equilibrium became a matter of intuition and style. Closing his eyes, Joseph heard the wire of the pick humming in his fingertips. With a satisfying metallic gurgle, the lock sprang open. Cornbloom nodded, stood up, stretched. "You may keep the tools," he said. Thomas Cavalier, Joseph's younger brother, was an animated gnome of a boy with thick black hair, When he was still very young, he had exhibited the musical chromosome of his mother's family and begun to regale dinner guests with stormy arias, sung in a complicated, gibberish Italian. During a family holiday at Lugano when he was ten, he was discovered to have acquired enough actual Italian from his perusal of favorite librettos to be able to converse with the hotel waiters. Constantly called upon to perform in his brother's productions, pose for his sketches, and vouch for his lies, he had developed a theatrical flair. In tribute to Yosef, Thomas held the memory of Houdini in great esteem. In a ruled school notebook, he had recently written the first lines of the libretto for an opera, Houdini, set in fabulous Chicago. Chicago. He was hampered in this project by the fact that he had never seen an escape artist perform. In his imagination, Houdini's deeds were far grander than anything that even the former Mr. Eric Weiss himself could have conceived leaps in suits of armor from flaming airplanes over Africa, and escapes from hollow balls launched into sharks' dens by undersea cannons. The reality Of Joseph's homework, assigned by his escape instructor, Herr Kornblum, the endless tinkering with locks and knots that Thomas had covertly witnessed night after night in the faint lamplight of the bedroom the boys shared was far less interesting to him than his brother's earlier interest in coin tricks and card magic had been. Joseph's sudden entrance at breakfast that morning into territory once occupied by Houdini marked a great day in Thomas's childhood. After their parents had left, the mother for her office on Naroddy Street, the father to catch a train for Brno, where he had been called in to consult on the mayor's giantess daughter. Thomas would not leave Joseph alone about Houdini and and his cheeks could he have fitted a two corona piece he wanted to know he lay on his bed watching as joseph returned the torque wrench to his special wallet yes but why might he have wanted to what about a box of matches i suppose so how would they have stayed dry Perhaps he wrapped them in oilcloth. What else does Herr Kornblum want you to put in there? I am learning to be an escape artist, not a valise, Joseph said irritably. Are you going to get to do a real escape now? I'm closer today than I was yesterday. And then you'll be able to join the Hofsensor Club? Joseph rolled his eyes, sorry he had ever told Thomas about the Hofsenzer. It was a private men's club in one of the old town's back streets that combined the functions of canteen, craft guild, and rehearsal hall for the performing magicians of Bohemia. Herr Kornblum took his evening meal there nearly every night— and Yosef had begun to believe that it was a living repository for the accumulated magical lore of centuries. Yosef wanted badly to be invited to join, but had tried to keep such wishes to himself. Thomas, for his part, filled his own mind with Byzantine ori and candied figs, haunted visions of men in cutaway coats and pasha pants, walking around in the Hossinzer with their upper torsos magically separated from their lower, while they summoned leopards and lyrebirds out of thin air. Then the time comes. I will receive my invitation, Joseph said. But what if you did something really grand to amaze them, Thomas said. We could throw you out of an airplane tied to a chair, with the parachute tied to another chair, falling through the air, like this. Thomas scrambled up from his bed and went over to his small desk, took out the blue notebook in which he had composed Houdini, and opened it to a back page where he had sketched the scene. Here was Houdini, in dinner jacket and parachute, hurtling downward from a crooked airplane, in company with... Two chairs, a table, and a tea set, all trailing scrawls of velocity. The magician had a smile on his face as he poured tea. He appeared to have all the time in the world. This is idiotic, Yosef said. What do I know about parachutes? Who's going to let me jump out of an airplane? Thomas blushed. How childish of me. Never mind, said Yosef. He stood up. Listen, weren't you playing with Papa's old things just now, his medical school things? Right here, Thomas said. He threw himself onto the floor and rolled under the bed. A moment later, a small wooden crate emerged covered in dust-furred silk, its lid hinged on crooked loops of wire. Yosef knelt down on the floor and lifted the lid, revealing odd bits of apparatus and scientific supplies that had survived their father's medical education. Adrift in ancient Excelsior were a broken Erlenmeyer flask, a pear-shaped glass tube with a penny-head stopper, a pair of crucible tongs, the leather-clad box that contained the remains of a portable Zeiss microscope. Wasn't there... Yosef dug deep into the rustling pile of shavings. Didn't we used to have... What? Thomas slid out from under the bed. Yosef held up a long, glinting glass wand and brandished it as Kornblum himself might have done. A thermometer, he said. What for? Whose temperature are you going to take? The rivers, Yosef. The next generation of influential Black voices can be found on NPR's new collection, Black Stories, Black Truths. Black Stories, Black Truths is a celebration of Blackness from NPR. Each of NPR's Black voices are as distinct, varied, and nuanced as the Black experience itself. And every episode is a living account of what it means to be Black today, told from a unique Black perspective, from Bobby Shmurda to The Wire. Michelle Obama, to reparations, there's no limit to the range of Black stories, Black truths. In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of some of NPR's best podcast episodes celebrating the Black experience. Because stories should never be about us without us. Listen now to Black Stories, Black Truths from NPR, wherever you get podcasts. At four o'clock in the morning of Friday, September 27th, 1935, the temperature of the water of the River Vitava, black as a church bell, and ringing against the stone embankment at the north end of Kampa Island in the heart of Prague, stood at 12.2 on the Celsius scale. The night was moonless and a fog. Lay over the river like an heiress drawn across by a conjurer's hand. The cavalier brothers had come prepared for cold weather. They were dressed in wool from head to toe, with two pairs of socks each. In the pack Yosef wore on his back, he carried a piece of rope, a length of chain, the thermometer, half a veal sausage, a padlock, and a change of clothes for himself with two extra pairs of socks. He also carried a portable coal-oil brazier, borrowed from an alpinist school friend. Although he did not plan to spend much time in the water, no longer than a minute and 27 seconds, he had been practicing for the past week in a bathtub filled with cold water, and he knew that even in the steam-heated comfort of the bathroom at home— It took several minutes after each dip to rid oneself of chill. In all his life, Thomas had never been up so early. He had never seen the streets of Prague so empty, the house fronts sunk in gloom like a row of lanterns with the wicks snuffed. The corners, he knew. The, shops, the carved lions on a balustrade that he passed daily on his way to school looked strange and momentous. Light spread in a feeble vapor from the street lamps and the corners were flooded with shadow. He kept imagining that he would turn and see their father chasing after them in his dressing gown and slippers. Joseph walked quickly and Thomas had to hurry to keep up with him. Cold air burned his cheeks. They stopped several times to lurk in a doorway or take shelter behind the swelling fender of a parked Skoda. They passed the open side door of a bakery, and Thomas was briefly overwhelmed by whiteness. A tiled white wall, a pale man dressed all in white, a cloud of flour hovering over a shining white mountain of dough. To Thomas's astonishment, it turned out that there were people about at this hour. Cab drivers, two drunken men singing, even a woman in a long black coat crossing the Charles Bridge. He began to be sorry he had come along. He wished he had never given Josef the idea of proving his mettle to the members of the Hofzenzer Club. It was not that he doubted his brother's ability. He was just afraid of the night, of the shadows, of drunks and ladies in overcoats, and especially on this morning of the river, darker than anything else in Prague. Josef, for his part, was afraid only of being stopped in this critical rehearsal. There could be nothing illegal, he reasoned, about tying yourself up in a laundry bag and then trying to swim out. He supposed he might be detained for swimming in the Vitava out of season, but he was on a tight schedule. Yesterday, he had mailed an invitation to the president of the Hofsensor Club. The honored members of the Hofsenser Club are cordially invited to witness another astounding feat of auto-liberation by that prodigy of escapistry, Cavalieri, at Charles Bridge, Sunday, 29 September 1935, at half-past four in the morning. He was pleased with the wording, but it left him only two days to get ready. For the past weeks, he had been picking locks with his hands immersed in a sinkful of cold water and wriggling free of his ropes and loosing his chains in the bathtub. Tonight, he would perform the feat of auto-liberation from the shore of Campa. Then, two days later, if all went well, he would have Thomas push him over the railing of the Charles Bridge. He had no doubt that he would be able to pull off the trick. Holding his breath for a minute and a half posed no difficulty for him. Thanks to Kornblum's training, he could go for nearly twice that time without drawing a breath. Twelve degrees Celsius was colder than the water in the pipes at home, but again, he was not planning to stay in it for long. A razor blade for cutting the laundry sack was safely concealed between the layers of the sole of his left shoe and Kornblum's torque wrench and a miniature pick were housed so comfortably in his cheeks that he was barely aware of them. Joseph had made the pick himself from the wire bristle of a street sweeper's push broom. Such considerations as the impact of his head on the water or one of the stone piers of the bridge, his paralyzing sudden stage fright in front of that eminent audience, or helplessly sinking... Did not break in upon his ID fixe. Joseph knelt and held a match to the brazier, turned it on, and heard it come hissing to life. There was a comfort in its merry light. I'm Freddy, he said. He stood up. Help me into the bag. He picked up the laundry sack they had pilfered from the housekeeper's closet, held it open, and stepped into its wide mouth as though into a pair of trousers. Then he took the length of chain Thomas offered him and wrapped it around his ankles three times before linking the ends with a heavy ratzell he had bought from an ironmonger. Now he held out his wrists to Thomas, who, as he had been instructed, bound them together with the rope and tied it tightly in a hitch and a pair of square knots. Yosef crouched down, and Thomas cinched the sack closed over his head. On Sunday, with the Hofsons here, we'll have you put chains and locks on the cord, Yosef said, his voice now muffled. But how will you get out? They'll be just for effect. I'm not coming out that way. The bag suddenly ballooned and Thomas took a step backward. Inside the sack, Yosef was bent forward and reaching out with both arms, seeking the ground. The bag toppled over. What happened? I'm fine. Roll me into the water. Thomas looked at the misshapen bundle at his feet. It looked too small to contain his brother. No! No! he said to his surprise. Thomas, please. You're my assistant. No, I'm not. I'm not even on the invitation. I'm sorry about that, said Joseph. I forgot. He waited. Now, roll me. The sack is too small. The chain will pull you down. Thomas said. He knelt down and started to uncinch the sack. You have to come out. Lying on his back, peering out through the suddenly reopened mouth of the sack, Yosef shook his head. Come on, tie it back up. It's too scary, Thomas said. What about the Hofsens' club? Huh? Don't you want me to take you to dinner there? Belly dancers, Turkish delight. Joseph, is your mouth bleeding? God damn it, Thomas. Tie up the goddamn sack. Thomas recoiled. Quickly, he bent and cinched the sack and rolled his brother into the river. A splash startled him and he burst into tears. An oval of ripples spread across the dark surface of the water. For a frantic instant, Thomas paced back and forth on the embankment, still hearing the explosion of water. The cuffs of his trousers were drenched, and cold water seeped in around the sides of his shoes. He had thrown his own brother into the river, drowned him like a litter of kittens. The next thing Thomas knew, he was on the Charles Bridge, running past the bridge's statues, headed for home. But as he was passing St. Christopher, he thought he heard something. He darted to the bridge parapet and looked over. He could just make out the faint glow of the brazier on the embankment. The surface of the river was unbroken. Thomas ran to the stairway that led back to the island, As he passed the round bollard at the stairhead, the slap of hard marble against his palm seemed to exhort him to brave the stony black water. He scrambled down the stone stairs two at a time, slid down the embankment, and fell headlong into the Vitava. Yosef! he called just before his mouth filled with water. All this while, Yosef, Blind, trussed, and stupid with cold, was madly holding his breath as one by one, the elements of his trick went awry. When he held out his hands to Thomas, he had crossed his wrists at the bony outer knobs, then flattened their soft inner sides together after he was tied, but the rope seemed to have contracted in the water, doing away with this half-inch of wriggling room, and in a panic that he had never thought possible. He felt almost a full minute slip away before he could free his hands. This triumph calmed him somewhat. He fished the wrench and pick from his mouth and, holding them carefully, reached down through the darkness for the chain around his legs. Cornbloom had warned him, against the tight grip of the amateur pick lock, and he was shocked when the wrench twisted like the stem of a watch and spun out of his fingers. He wasted 15 seconds groping after it and then required another 20 or 30 to slip the pick into the lock. His fingertips were deadened by the cold, and only by some random vibration in the wire did he manage to hit the pins, set the drivers, and twist the plug Of the lock. This same numbness helped him when reaching for the razor in his shoe, he sliced open the tip of his right index finger. Though he could see nothing, he knew that the dark humming stuff around him now bore a thread of blood. Kicking his feet in their heavy shoes and two pairs of socks, he burst to the surface. Three and a half minutes had gone by since he had tumbled into the river, and only Kornbloom's exercises and a miracle of habit had kept him from exhaling the last atom of oxygen in his lungs. Gasping now, he clambered up the embankment and crawled on his hands and knees toward the brazier. The smell of coal oil was like the odor of hot bread, of warm summer pavement. He sucked in deep barrelfuls of air. The world seemed to pour into sight. Spidery trees, fog, the flickering lamps strung along the bridge. Abruptly, he was sick and spat up something bitter and shameful and hot. He wiped his lips with the sleeve of his wet wool shirt and felt a little better. Then he realized that his brother had disappeared. Shivering, he stood up, his clothes hanging heavy as chain mail, and saw Thomas, in the shadow of the bridge, chopping clumsily at the water, paddling, gasping, drowning. Joseph went back in. The water was as cold as before, but he did not feel it. As he swam, he felt something fingering him, plucking at his legs, trying to snatch him under. The Earth's gravity? Or perhaps only the swift Vitava current? When Thomas saw Yosef splashing toward him, he burst into tears. Keep crying, Yosef said as he reached him. That's good. He got an arm around his brother's waist and then tried to drag them, Thomas and his ponderous self, back toward the Campa embankment. As they splashed and wrestled in the middle of the river, they kept talking, though neither could remember later what the subject of the discussion had been. Whatever it was, it struck them both afterward as having been something calm and leisurely, like the murmurs between them that sometimes preceded sleep. At a certain point, Yosef realized that his limbs felt warm now, even hot, and that he was drowning. His last conscious perception was of Bernard Kornblum cutting through the water toward them, his bushy beard tied up in a hairnet. Josef came to an hour later in his bed at home. It took two more days for Thomas to revive, and for most of that time, no one, least of all his doctor parents, expected that he would. He was never quite the same afterward. He could not bear cold weather, and he suffered from a lifelong snuffle. Also, perhaps because of damage to his ears, he lost his... His taste for music, the libretto for Houdini, was abandoned. The magic lessons were broken off at the request of Bernard Kornblum. Throughout the difficult weeks that followed the escapade, Cornblom was a model of correctness and concern, bringing toys and games for Thomas, interceding on Joseph's behalf with the Cavaliers, shouldering all the blame. The doctor's cavalier believed their sons when they said that he had nothing to do with the incident. But Kornblum told them that his time with Josef had come to an end. He had never had so gifted a student, but his own discipline, which was really an escape artist's sole possession, had not been passed along. He didn't tell them what he now privately believed, that Yosef was one of those unlucky boys who become escape artists not to prove the superior machinery of their bodies against outlandish contrivances and the laws of physics, but for dangerously metaphorical reasons. Such people feel imprisoned by invisible chains, walled in, sewn up. In layers of batting. For them, the final feat of auto-liberation was all too foreseeable. Two weeks later, when Thomas had recovered, Kornblum called at the flat to escort the brothers to dinner at the Hofsenzer Club. It turned out to be a quite ordinary place, with a cramped, dimly-lit dining room that smelled of liver and onions. There was a small library with a few dozen moldering volumes on deception and forgery. In the lounge, an electric fire cast a negligible glow over scattered armchairs covered in worn velour and a few potted palms and dusty rubber trees. An old waiter Named Max made some ancient hard candies fall clumsily out of his handkerchief into Thomas's lap. The magicians, for their part, barely glanced up from their chessboards and silent rubbers of bridge. Their playing cards were devastated by years of crimps, breaks, and palmings at the hands of bygone card sharps. Since neither Cornbloom nor Joseph possessed any conversational skills, it fell upon Thomas to carry the burden of talk at the table, which he dutifully did, until one of the members, an old necromancer, dining alone at the next table, told him to shut up. At nine o'clock, Cornbloom brought the boys home. Wow. I was, <laughs> I was so excited to read this story. I cannot tell y'all. Um, when, when this happens, when I read a story for the first time and, and, and in that first reading, I'm already beginning to, you know, to hear and hear the characters and see the action. Um, I, I, I know I'm in for something special and my excitement level just, I get pumped um, anticipating coming into the studio to read that story. This was that kind of an experience for me. I love this story uh, so much. I, I lived in, some of you may know, I, I lived in Germany for a brief time when I was a child. I was actually born there in 1957, and, and we were there in the mid-60s for another tour of duty. It's its that time um, that I, I really remember the third and, and the fourth grade, um, that I spent in, in, in Hanau at the Hanau American elementary school and, and living, um, first on the, the economy and then in, in, uh, base housing, um, for dependents of, of servicemen, um, I remember my time in Germany really, really fondly. It was a magical time. I mean, for God's sakes, we were, you know, we we were not far from the Black Forest. You know, it was the, it was where Hans Christian Andersen's tales had taken place. I mean, I was literally in the land of freaking magic, right? And fairy tales. So that was the context for, for, for Germany for me. Um, And anytime I am, I that button gets gets touched that that goodie button that says the germany of your childhood with the beer man um bottles with tops that were connected to metal that you had to pop off right um toto sticks hard candy in the shape of a cone on a plastic stick and every stick had a different character on it and you collected the toto sticks Licorice, my favorite candy, black licorice in rolls. Um, these are the memories of my my time in in Germany when I was young. Well, one of the things that I really love about this story is uh, the the brother relationship. Never having had a brother, my older sibling is 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 my sister, Letitia, whom I, I love dearly. But you know, it's not like the experience of having an older brother. So I I, I didn't have that really until I was an adult the the sense of what it felt like to have a brother someone who really has your back through thick and thin right i mean i i i did grow up with with people that i considered like brothers of mine from the seminary um and 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 that was that was the my be, the beginning of my understanding of the value of 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 that level that depth of of friendship so i i i, I, I when I read a story that expresses a great, you know, brother dynamic, it, it, uh, it, it hits a place of, of longing, you know, for me, not having had that uh, familial experience. The Hofsenzer Club. Jawohl. It is good, yeah? Ja? Or, as they sometimes say, alles beschissen. Our producer on this episode of LeVar Burton Reads is the best in the business, Julia Smith, with associate producer credits going to Kristen Torres. Our editing and sound design by Brendan Burns, who knew the kid was so talented. My thanks to Michael Chabon for allowing me to read his story, The Hofsenser Club. It's from his novel, The Amazing Adventures of Cavalier and Clay published by Random House. The story first appeared in The New Yorker in the July 19th, 1999 issue. And Fight of the Century, which was edited by Michael Chabon and Ayelet Waldman, will publish in 2020 by Simon & Schuster to coincide with the centennial anniversary of the ACLU. You can pre-order it now. And I am contractually obligated to say that if you like the show, Recommend an episode to a friend who you think would enjoy it. And you can also leave a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts. And why not include a story suggestion for us? We read them. We use them. You hear them. You can get exclusive bonus interviews on Stitcher Premium. Each story goes up one week early and ad-free, so go to StitcherPremium.com slash LeVar, or if you're listening in Stitcher already, just tap the menu button in your app and select Premium for one month free. LeVar Burton Reads is a production of Stitcher. Our supervising producer is Josephine Marjarana. Our executive producers are Chris C.B. Bannon and yours truly, LeVar Burton I am LeVar Burton, and you can find me on Twitter at LeVar Burton and LeVar.Burton on Instagram. I'll see you next time, but you don't have to take my word for it. Stitcher.